so let, 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 me give an, let me give an example of, of the point that um, I'm trying to get at. Let's say I gave a job to two people at a factory on an assembly line, right? And I gave them the same exact job. And I, and I spoke to one, and I said, at the end of this month of you working, I'm going to give you $1,000, right? And I spoke to the other, and I said, at the end of this month of you working, I'm going to give you a million dollars, right? And so after a few weeks, they, they, they speak to each other. Right? And, and this job is really strenuous. And they're talking to each other. And, and the, the first person is like, I, I can't take this job. This is so difficult. This is not worth it. I can't wait for this month to be over. Right? Now, the other person would probably say, what are you talking about? This is the easiest job on earth. Like, right? And, and why, why is that? Why would their experience of the same circumstances change their outlook? Um, on, you know, why would this hope that they have for, at the end of the month change their outlook on their present circumstances, because something different is going to happen at the end, right? The, the first person is getting $1,000, right? They're going to think, this job is not worth it. This is too difficult. I want to quit. The second person, they're going to think, this is, this is the easiest thing I've ever done in my life, right? And so for us as human beings, what I'm trying to establish is that we are hope-driven creatures. The way that we see our lives, the way we see our circumstances, the way we go about our day, very much is impacted by the hope that we have. By the hope that we have. There's one author, Viktor Frankl, who wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And um, Viktor Frankl actually survived uh, the Holocaust. And um, he expressed in this book his experiences throughout his time at a concentration camp. And as he was going about um, you know, life at this concentration camp, what he realized was that from prisoner to prisoner, the way that they experienced the camp changed based on so many different circumstances about their outlook. So if they thought the war was, was going to end soon and that they'd be freed, he realized they had so much more resilience when they would get sick. You know, if, if they had to go through hard labor, they were able to, to kind of eke it out a little bit more, right? Because of this hope that their circumstances were going to change, right? And so hope is an extremely powerful thing, right? And today, we're going to be looking at this text in First Peter. Um, and we're going to be asking the question, where does hope come from and what does it produce? Where does hope come from and where does it, what does it produce? And so, firstly, where does um, hope come from? And so if you guys open your Bibles, we're working out of First Peter um, 1, verses 13 through 16. I'll read the text. It'll, it'll be up on the screen. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the, on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you have when you live in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Now to give you guys a background on the text, that we're going through today. We, we are a few weeks into this um, book of First Peter, and as we've established in the first couple of weeks, Peter, one of the apostles, was writing to a group of churches that were extremely persecuted, that were extremely poor, that were going through extremely difficult trials, right? And, and they were going through difficult circumstances. And so this verse comes as an encouragement to them. What to do when you're feeling extremely marginalized? What to do when you feel like your circumstances 
aren't going to really change, when things aren't really going to change around you. These are people who were, in society, very powerless, right? And so where would their hope come from? And so what Peter establishes, this uh, first verse, is that when they go through difficult times, they should set their hope on the grace to be brought to them when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. That's his encouragement for them. Set their hope on the grace to be brought to them when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So the fact that Peter would talk about hope uh, makes a lot of sense. It, it, whenever we're going through difficult times, whenever we're feeling discouraged, whenever we're going through situations that feel impossible, we search, we scramble for things to put our hope in. We search and scramble for some sort of sign that things are going to get better. And Peter points them to this grace that will be brought to them when Jesus Christ is revealed that he's coming. So what exactly will be brought to them? What exactly will be brought to us as the church? And to, to know this, we have to actually go to the very end of the Bible. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. I have it up on the screen. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And so what this passage is explaining is a reality that Christians believe is coming when Jesus Christ returns. This reality where everything that was broken in Genesis 3, everything that's broken because of sin, everything that's broken because of, of, of the trials that we now experience in this world will be set to right. Every tear will be wiped away. And so personally, we will experience restoration. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So we experience the fullness of this restoration with God in Jesus Christ. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And so this present order, which is filled with pain, suffering, and injustice, will be made new. Right? This is what we say, this is what we believe. Right? This is why, I, I, don't know, I don't know if anyone's gotten to Revelation 21 in their year-long Bible reading plan, but this is why it's so important to, to, to understand right, what is coming when Jesus returns. And so this hope for them is huge. And it's, it's huge for us too. Because for us, when we're going through trials, when we're going through circumstances, when we're going through difficulties, what do we set our hope in? What do we set our hope in? You know, if, if, if we set our hope on blank, is it going to fulfill us? Is it going to make things better? Is it going to actually bring us that restoration? What gives you a sense that things are going to be okay? You know, I think a lot of us um, experience um, us putting our hope in actually pretty good things, but good things that won't actually make us whole. And, and just to kind of establish that in, in as universal of a way as possible, you know, I, I think for a lot of us when we're, when we're, you know, in middle school, we're like, man, I can't wait to get to high school. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to be, you know, finally mature. I'm going to be a big kid. Like, this is going to be so cool, right? And we get to high school, and we're like, man, this is not what I expected, but I can't wait to get to college because I'm going to have freedom. I'm going to be out of the, you know, I'm going to be out of the house and be doing my own thing, 
you get to college, right? And, 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 and you go through college and you're like, man, I really just can't wait to get out and start working and to have some money. I'm broke. I need some money, right? And so, and so then, and then we start working, right? And we're like, man, this is really difficult. This isn't what I, I thought it was going to be. But, um, but, but, but you know, uh, you know, maybe, maybe if I have someone to share my life with, right, right, then, then things will be, will be right, right. And then so, so for, for those of us who get married, we're like, oh man, this is really difficult. This is what I was going to be, right? And so, and so now we're like, but, but man, if I had the joy of children, if I had the joy of children, it would be. And then, and then for those of us with kids, we can't wait until they get out of the house, right? And so it's like all these stages. Right, and I know it's like summer, so there's kids in here. Your, your parents love you; they want you in the home for 50 years, right? But um, but we 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 do this. We set our hope on these future things that are going to soon come, that we think are going to fulfill us. But for some reason, why is it that they never really make things right? Why is it that so often, actually, just like the Christians in First Peter, life actually sometimes gets even more difficult when we actually find this, right? And so. There are these different, you know, we're tempted to put our hope um, in, in so many different things, but really none of, these, none of these things were meant to fully restore us or make us whole. Um, they may be really good things, but, but, but they're not the things that are going to set all things right, right? And, and, and we, have, we have so many solutions, right, which, which might be really good ideas as to what are going to make things right, right? But, um, but here, Peter's actually calling us to set our hope on Jesus, on this grace that's going to be brought to us when we return, right? And so, um, you know, not only is that what is going to set things right, but that's also going to be ultimately uh, this, this experience of Jesus ushering in his kingdom, but also the experience of, of knowing that and resting in that now. That's really what's going to fulfill us. Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in the hearts of men and women. And so what we have to understand is that actually, even when things aren't really going difficult or there aren't trials, our hearts are hungry for God. Our hearts are hungry to be fulfilled with something that's eternal, right? And so when we seek to all these different things to bear the freight of our, our heart, to bear the freight of our soul, they are inevitably going to leave us wanting. They may fulfill us for a time, but ultimately um, what we're looking for, what our hearts are mean to be setting our hope in is this grace that's brought to us in Jesus. And so, the C.S. Lewis quote, um, I'm going to read it. I, I really feel like it, it, it sums this up, this experience up. It says, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. And so what Lewis is saying here, what this passage is saying here, it is something which is honestly convicting for me. Because a lot of the times when I look at my faith, I think about how my faith impacts the here and now. And that's, that's good. Our character should change. Right? We should experience transformation. We should experience fulfillment. But, but even this present experience is not what we are made for. We are made for every tear to be wiped away, for sin to be fully wiped out and cleansed. And, and we were made, honestly, for this experience, which we, like, we need to 
really wrap our heads around the fact that this is real and this is going to happen, where we're going to see God face to face and be brought into his kingdom forever. Think about the security that we'll feel in that moment. Think about that feel, feeling where our faith is made sight. And th- this thing that I've been living for, right, it, it's real. It's here. It's present. And here I am, standing with God, right? And so th- this is actually what Peter's calling us to put our hope in. And so there's two objections that I think we, someone might have uh, to this mentality or this hope, right? Um, the, the, the first, and, and both of them I can understand, but both of them is not, P- Peter actually addresses this, and it's not, not what he's saying, but the first one um, is the old adage that uh, Christians are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good, right? Cr- Christians are always focused on, on, on the afterlife and heaven and God and this abstract thing that they don't do anything good in the world, right? They're so focused on the, this other world that they have no impact here. And we see that if that's true, that's a misapplication of this verse because Peter actually clauses this in verse 13 by saying, with your minds that are fully that are alert and fully sober. He's, this is a call to action, and we'll get into that in, the, in, the, in the, the rest of the passage, but this is a call to action to actually live and respond to this hope by living differently, by acting differently, by doing something, a call to action. Our minds should be alert. Um, the, the actual phrasing and the idiom that's used in this passage is, is, is girding up your loins for action, right? And that, what does that even mean, right? Um, but basically, this is a phrase that would have been made a lot of sense in the first century when everybody wore robes, right? And, and, and in order for you to get ready to run or to do any type of work, you would actually have to kind of like, you know, I don't know what you would do. I've never worn a, a robe like this before, but you would, you would have to kind of make it possible for you to run, for you to physically, you know, have some activity, right? This is what Peter is calling them to. And the second objection, um, which also we'll see Peter strikes this down, is that, you know, Christians are all faith and no reason, right? Yeah, you, you could have your hope in this, in this, this, fan, this pie in the sky, right? But, but what about the here and now, right? How, how do I even know that's real, right? I, 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 I'm living in the present where I could actually see things, where it really makes sense, right? Um, there's this one quote that I found which I feel like sums up this objection well. Uh, mostly religion, Christianity specifically, suppresses critical thought. In essence, it makes people less intelligent by telling them that, the, that faith is just as good or better than arriving at a conclusion through deductive reasoning and evidence. To me, that is Christianity's most offensive crime. It's what causes otherwise good people to think cruelly, cruelly um, to think cruelty or inequality are moral. And so um, I think about that objection, and I also recognize here in reading First Peter that, that that actually isn't what Peter's calling them to do. He's actually calling them to think. He's saying with minds that are alert, that are fully sober, he's calling them to actually process this reality of it, what they say they believe. And we see this throughout Scripture. So often when, when Paul or Peter um, would, be, would be writing to the church, and, and, and this church lacked hope, or they lacked peace, or they lacked comfort. You know, I think about Philippians 4, where, um, you know, Paul says in, in trials we should, we should uh, pray, without, uh, pray without ceasing. This peace that transcends understanding um, will, you know, um, comfort us in Christ Jesus. 
And at the end of this chapter, he says, think deeply on these things, and you will understand. Right? Think deeply about this reality of Jesus and what you say you believe about the world and about God, and you'll experience peace. You'll experience comfort. You'll experience hope. Right? Now, this is to kind of be um, counter, I guess, uh, uh, I, I guess you could say this is the opposite, I would say, of, of someone who would say, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm all reason and no faith. That God stuff, that's, that's not for me. I don't really believe in that. I believe in what I can see. Okay, well, you know, I have these conversations very often with my friends who would critique Christianity for that very reason. And, you know, what, what, I, what I've said before and what I might say is, oh, okay, so, so, so you, don't, you believe that this world is all there is. You believe that God doesn't exist and this world is all there is, right? And so, so basically love... Um, is really just a chemical, right? It's, I mean, love is not a real thing. It's just a chemical that helped our ancestors, you know, survive. And, and, and really, it's, it's just like this abstract thing. We pretend that it's this real thing that we experience, but it's really just our chemicals tricking us to feel sort of, sort of these things for each other. And justice is completely subjective. That's not a real thing either. That's completely based off of our society. And, and you know, all the accomplishments in your life and all the people in your life, eventually they're all just going to, kind of die and fade away and the sun is going to eat up the earth and no one's going to remember it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, I don't really think about it like that. I mean, I try not to think about that stuff. You know, I just try to live my day in the here and now and not to think too deeply about all those things, you know, someone might say. Okay, well, well Christianity is different. Christianity calls us to think reasonably and rationally about what we believe about the universe and we will experience hope. Whereas, really, for, for, for someone who might object to this, they actually have to think less about reality to have hope. They have to think less about reality to actually experience any peace or comfort because to think one second about what you say you truly believe would really cause anyone to have an existential crisis. And so here, Peter is calling us to think about what we say we believe about Jesus, about God, and we will actually experience hope, peace, and comfort. And so what do we consume? What do we meditate on? What do we rest on? This is why waking up in the morning and praying and reading scripture, even for five minutes, is going to change the way that we live. Because it's a reminder, right? We need to be reminded of reality because what we consume changes the way that we see the world. When I wake up and I hit my alarm, which is on my phone, and then I jump straight to sports and news and texts and, and, and podcasts and all this stuff, right? All of a sudden now, my mind is totally oriented around all of these things, and I'm not really aware of what's going on around me, right? I, I, I think about, you know, the fact that, you know, so I, I'm one of those people that are, that are guilty of, you know, walking with my phone and just kind of walking down the sidewalk. Steve, I'm sure you're driving the bus you hate. Someone's walking right into the middle of the road. The bus is about to hit them. And, and they don't even realize what's going on because they're glued to their phone, right? Now, I'm not bashing cell phones. I'm just saying th this, is a, this is an example of the fact that we could be so consumed in these things we distract ourselves with that we forget the reality of what's coming to us, this hope that we have in Jesus Christ, right? So what do we consume? What do we meditate on? Um, so think deeply. With minds alert and fully sober. Set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed in his coming. And, and so hope comes from this grace that we have in Jesus. 
And we're going to get into a little bit more of what that means. But what does that hope produce? What does that hope produce? And so we see in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we see that a response to this grace, a response to this news, which is wrapped up in the fact that although all of us have sinned, although all of us have, 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 are broken and, and, and have broken God's law, right? The God of the universe took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died, died a death for us on a cross and rose again, right? The call to respond to that is, is Peter is saying, is to be holy. Be holy, right? And he quotes Leviticus. Um, in, in, in verse 16, be holy because I am holy. So if we're to live in light, all right, that, it's like, okay, great. So, so did Jesus die for me? I mean, I feel like I, I've heard people say this before, like Jesus died for me. Okay, I believe that now. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe all these things. But like, I don't know what's next. I don't know what my response should be. What exactly am I supposed to live for now? Like, I, okay, cool. I'm just processing this. But, but, but what's the difference? And, and Peter is saying here, the response should be to be holy because God is holy. To, 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 to reflect God's character and nature because we now belong to him. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be holy? Because I think this word, whether you're in a religious setting or out of a religious setting, gets used so often that it loses its meaning, right? Well, if we go back to Leviticus, we see that God is calling his people to be holy. And, and I think most people would say, that means be a good person, be moral, live, live with morality, right? That's what it means to be holy. But that's, it's not less than that, but it's got to be more than that, because in Leviticus, it talks about how there's holy pots, and there's holy tables, and there's holy spaces. And so, what is, what is a moral, like, how, what is a moral table? What does that even mean? These are inanimate objects, and they're called holy, right? The better question is, what is an immoral table? That's scary, right? And so, um, but, but these items, right, that, that are in this sanctuary, they're called holy, right? What, what, what would this mean? Well, you know, in Israel, during this time, you might have a table that you eat at with your family, and you want, to, you want it to be donated to, to the temple, donated, donated to the temple to be used solely now. You can't, this table isn't yours. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs fully to this temple, and it's used only for worship, right? And so here we begin to get a little bit of a hint of what it means to be holy. This table was set apart, and it was used to glorify God, right? And so for us, our lives now, when we respond to this grace that's found in Jesus, are now to be set apart and used fully for God's worship, right? Now, this is significant because ultimately all of us, where we put, I don't think I, I don't, I'm glad Peter put this command in here, but I don't think he needed to put his, this command in here because this happens naturally. What do I mean by that? Well, the thing that you put your hope in, the thing that, that you believe is going to make your life right, you are inevitably going to reallocate your resources to that thing, right? If you believe, right, that this relationship 
is going to make you right, and this is what you're putting your hope in. You are going to reallocate everything to pursue this person, right? If you believe that this job is going to make, if succeeding and advancing in this job is where you're putting your hope, you are going to reallocate all of your energy and your time, and, 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 and you, you may even compromise your own beliefs to advance, right? And so wherever we put our ultimate hope in, that is what we're going to live for. That is what we're going to be set apart for. Does that make sense? And so, and so really, this is a litmus test for, okay, what are we actually living for? What, what, you know, we may, it's very easy for us to, to kind of just blend in with our, our church culture and, and just kind of show up on Sunday and, and maybe even on, on the outside kind of observe the same social norms that we see in church and in our small group and with our Christian friends, right? But then what happens when a competing interest to God that, that we actually prioritize above God conflicts with the will of God? Okay, now we begin to see where our hearts are truly worshiping. What, you know, if, if, if I put my job above Jesus, and I'm called to, 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 um, to compromise my ethics in order for this job to, to succeed, and I actually do that, then all of a sudden I see actually the thing I've been putting my hope in is not Jesus, but, but my job, right? The same could go for a relationship. The same could go for, for a whole host of different things, right? And so um, ultimately, we're called to be set apart and to be holy, to be set apart for God's use only, right? Also, we see here, um, this logic, be holy. Why? Because God is holy, right? And so if we're set apart, if we belong to God, that means that when the world looks at us and we claim the name of Jesus, that the way that we live is going to reflect how people see God. There's nothing worse for an organization or for a sports team, for one of its players to, to get caught in a scandal. You know, to, to, to get suspended for for abuse, or or you know, or or if, if if the CEO gets gets fired for you know something scandalous, right? Why? Because that person's actions don't just represent them; they represent the organization they belong to. And so, if we're set apart and we belong to God, and our lives don't reflect God's character, it's not just going to reflect poorly on us; it's going to reflect poorly on God. People are going to believe that Jesus is just, whether it's fair or not, people are going to believe that Jesus is just like his people, right? And so we're called to be holy. Why? Because God is holy, right? Um, because we represent him. And so um, if our lives point to this hope, we're going to be set apart from it. And, um, and that's going to change not only our actions, but our desires. See, in, in verse 14, it says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you once lived in ignorance. So once again, just as a sidebar, Peter is calling them to be thoughtful, to think deeply about what they believe because previously they were once in ignorance. But um, here he also says not to conform to the evil desires that we had um, before coming to Jesus, right? And so our desires, the things that, that, that we want, are going to reflect what we put our hope in. And we see that here. There's a connection between all these things. And so, how how does this um, how does this ultimately change um, in light of Jesus? Right. Well, for all of us, um, 
you see actually in this passage in John 11 um, this, this idea that, that Jesus is, this hope that we have in him is bigger than anything in this life it's even, it's even bigger than death right um, in John 11 it said you know this is the passage where um, Lazarus dies um, Jesus' friend Lazarus passed away he, he became ill and he was buried right and, and we see that Jesus came to this tomb and visited his friends. And, and we see this, the smallest verse in the English Bible, it's profound, it says that Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? One, if, if he knew that he was going to raise him from the dead. But why did Jesus weep even in light of this passage in 1 Peter? He knew that all things were going to be made right, right? Why? Because, well, you know, there's a lot of commentators that say that the reason why Jesus wept is because he was weeping at the very reality of death to begin with. This was a very, almost like, metaphorical moment where, where Jesus' friend died and, and he was weeping at the fact that this isn't the way it should be. And all of us experience this, right? You can rationalize, death is a part of life, right? Okay, cool. Like, this is just a natural thing that happens. But, but deep down in our hearts, no matter what you believe, you know when someone close to you dies, when, when, or when you experience sickness and, and maybe a scare that, that, that could have been, you know, fatal, that that's, that's, there's something in us that just says, this isn't the way it's supposed to be, right? And so Jesus weeping at this, it's actually pointing to this hope in Revelation 21. Um, and we see that, that he did go on to raise Lazarus from the dead, pointing to the fact that this same thing would happen to all of us as well. And we also know that just shortly after John 11, Jesus himself, the God of the universe, taking on human flesh, right, would experience death himself. That's profound. And we see um, in Hebrews 12 um, this really amazing idea that that you know, we're, we're called to keep our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. In this verse, in Hebrews 12, we actually see the key to how Jesus was able to endure the cross. This was the biggest trial he ever experienced. The night before, he was sweating drops of blood at the stress and anguish and anxiety of this trial he was about to experience. And how did he get through it? Because his joy was set on what was before him, what was going to come after the cross. And what was that? He was going to sit on the right hand of God with the assembled saints, with his people. Jesus endured the cross so that he could spend eternity with us. And the thing that got him through the cross was this joy that he was going to spend eternity with us. And we're called to do the exact same thing except vice versa, right? We're, when we're going through trials, when we're picking up our cross and following Jesus, the way that we have hope is processing and thinking deeply on the fact that we are going to spend eternity with Jesus. And so in the same way that when I'm going through a difficult day and Karen's going through a difficult day and we know that at the end of this day we're going to spend tonight together. In the same way, Jesus looking at the cross, us looking at the trials. How does he get through it? How do we get through it? By processing the fact that we are going to spend eternity together united. And, and, and in this hope, 
we can face any trial. In this hope, we can face death itself. It says elsewhere in the New Testament that Jesus freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. The worst thing that could happen to us is now the best thing that could happen to us because we enter into eternity with Jesus. And that is why, as I call the worship team up, we could sing this hymn that says, Jesus lives and death is now, but my entrance into glory. Courage then, my soul, for thou hast the crown of life before me. So new hope, as we go through these trials, as we go through these difficulties, as we face even, even the worst things that life could throw at us, death, right? As we look out into the world and see the, the chaos, the hatred, the injustice, the racism, all of these things which, which, which give us great peril, which discourage us, which make us feel like there's no hope, do, can you see that actually we have a hope that could bring us through any trial? And then as we live in light of that great hope, that's how we could be a city on a hill. That's how our light could shine to a world that's hungry for hope. People are searching for this hope. People are hungry for something to hang their hat on in a broken world. And so what would it look like as a church if we actively pointed people to this hope? People are, we're hungry for because we're human. Everyone is hungry for this. Because we're human. And so as a church, if we to think deeply about this reality, would we ready ourselves for action with our minds fully sober, setting our hope on this grace that will be revealed to the sons of And as God's children adopted into his not conform to what we want, but we conform to what God wants. Do we not conform to what the world wants, but we conform to what God wants. Represent Him in bearing this hope. May I stop close your eyes and bow your heads. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that we have a hope that's greater than this world. Jesus, you prayed for your church. All those us by saying that he who is in us, this Jesus, this, this Holy Spirit, this triune God that dwells with us and that will dwell with forever, even when we face trials in this world, that, that he is greater than the world. God, that you are greater than the world. And so God, I pray that, that whatever folks in this church are going through, whether it's apathy, whether it's would you help us to think deeply about the reality of your grace? Would you help us to wake up to this amazing reality that we say we're all in on? So often we fail to live it. That we say that we're all in on, but God, so often we fail to feel it. God, would you help us to live and experience your grace? Help us to be a light on a hill in this world that so deeply hungers for answers to the brokenness all around it. Lord, but we know that you restore, that you transform, and that you will make all things new. So we praise you for that, and we pray that we will carry that message with us.